Welcome to The Gangster, book six in the Galactic Football League series. Written and performed by Scott Sigler, The Gangster is suitable for ages 12 and up and contains graphic violence. The Gangster is also available as a signed, numbered, limited edition hardcover while supplies last. To order, go to scottsigler.com slash store. Hello, junkies! Well, this is it. The last episode of The Gangster. Counting the short story collections and rebroadcasts of books, this is the 36th podcast novel that I've completed for y'all. 36! Wow, it's a lot of, a lot of stories. Right now, we finish The Gangster. This episode, and of course the entire book, sets up the as-yet-untitled GFL book number Seven, which itself leads into GFL Book 8, which will conclude the GFL series forever. Now, we still have two gangster Q&A episodes coming up for you. And then, on September 26th, we begin The Stone Wolves, a GFL novel co-written with J.C. Hutchins. It is a girthy whopper, and I hope you all dig it. So, for episode 40 of The Gangster, I don't have much more to say, other than the things I usually say when I finish a podcast novel. Namely, I want to thank you for spending your time with me to listen to this book. Money is a thing you can replace. Time you cannot replace. Ever. I am honored by the hours you spend with me every week. Time is the currency of life, and the fact that you spend yours listening to stories I create is humbling. Something a real girl and I treasure more than we can possibly express. So, thank you. And we hope you enjoyed this novel. No story so far this time. Let's get right into it. Let's carry that ball across the goal line. And then, on September 26th, I will once again take you into the GFL era of the Siglerverse with the Stone Wolves. And now, the conclusion of The Gangster. Epilogues. Epilogue 1. Genetics. There is something unusual about the child, Doc Patah said. They were in Patah's office in the medical complex beneath Ionath Stadium. A holotank sat to the right of the Haraz desk, showing a slowly spinning Kraken's logo. Quentin had been treated by the Haraz dozens of times, but had never been in this office before. Quentin and Becca sat in the chairs in front of Patah's desk. Back on the right, Quentin on the left. Her hand squeezed his, so hard he almost winced in surprise. You said the baby is fine. Becca's words came out like machine gun fire. She's fine, right? Yesterday you said she was fine. Is something wrong? What's wrong? She's fine. The child appears to be healthy, Patah said, speaking softly in an obvious attempt to soothe Becca. His tone was one thing, the words he chose were another. Appears to be, Becca said. What does that mean? If our baby appears to be fine, why did you make us come see you instead of calling me? Her hand squeezed Quentin's harder. He'd worn his Galaxy Bowl 28 championship slash wedding ring on his left hand. On his right, he wore his Galaxy Bowl 27 ring and the Bluestone Galaxy Bowl 28 ring from Hokor. It was gaudy to wear three bulky rings, but he hadn't cared. At least, he hadn't until Becca's crushing grip ground metal against bone. Uh, sweetheart, can you take it easy on my hand? 
Becca's grip relaxed slightly. Doc, Quentin said. You want to elaborate for us? The hurrah hesitated. Quentin had another moment of surrealism. Doc Patah was now his employee. That Quentin could order Patah around, it was, well, it was weird. Becca grew anxious, started to squeeze again, but this time Quentin was ready. Let Doc think, he said. He'll tell us. Stay calm. Her grip eased again. Quentin had never seen her this worried. Becca could go head-to-head with a literal giant like Ryan Nosek, a man who had killed sentience on the gridiron and not back down one iota. On the field, she was cold as iron, hard as steel. She was the Rekka, an all-pro athlete who feared no one, yet a bit of unclear information about the baby instantly exposed her deepest terrors. A ripple coursed along Patah's gray skin. His gray wings undulated slowly. I have been a licensed practicing physician for longer than either of you have been alive, he said. I have cared for pregnant females of five races. I have delivered over 50 human children as well as another six heavy G. As a physician, I have overseen two human heavy G hybrid pregnancies. One was successful, the other was not. I say this to show you that I have significant experience in the matter of human and heavy G pregnancies. In all of that experience, I have never seen fetal development like what is happening with your child. The words stirred fear inside of Quentin. But, but the baby is healthy. Becca's voice was low and soft, yet hinted at danger, as if the wrong answer could get Doc Patah hurt. Stop playing games and tell me the baby is healthy. Not just healthy, Patah said beyond healthy. Early on, there were some congenital issues that, had they continued unchecked, could have possibly endangered the baby's life. Becca stood, Quentin's hand still awkwardly in hers. My baby's life was in danger, she said, and you didn't tell me? Doc Patah showed no sign of being intimidated. It was too early to tell for sure, he said. I chose to withhold that information because of your high level of anxiety. I am not anxious. Becca's hand clenched down on Quentin's like a vice. This time, he couldn't hold back a hiss of pain. She looked at his hand again, stared at it for a moment, then let it go. Rebecca, Patah said, please sit down. She sat. Your emotional state is perfectly normal for a first-time mother, Patah said. What I am telling you is that those congenital defects that concern me, they are gone. They have vanished. When I first saw those defects, there was an even chance they would turn out to be harmless or would require advanced surgery and therapy. If they had required intervention, we would have had to wait until they were far enough along to address them, which is the main reason I waited to tell you. A mother's stress can impact fetal development. Upon your most recent exam, however, I saw something I hadn't expected, something no doctor or scientist in the galaxy would expect The defects had vanished, as if they'd never existed at all. That sounded like positive news, yet it seemed to disturb Patah. But that's good, Quentin said. Right, Doc? Good, but unprecedented. In the entire recorded history of human heavy G hybrids, I could find no instances of this phenomenon. Based on my observations, I am left with only one logical conclusion. The fetus has something in its genetic code that recognized the defect, then eliminated them. 
It's as if the League of Planets' best biosculptors operated on the child and removed anything even possibly wrong down to the genetic level. Becca shook her head hard enough to make her heavy black hair whip this way and that. But I didn't have any surgeries. She grabbed Quentin's hand again, looked at him with wide eyes. I wouldn't make a move without you, I swear. He put his hand on her knee. Take it easy, babe. Let him finish. Quentin looked at Bata, started to feel annoyance at the doctor's long-winded explanation. Of course you did not have surgery, Bata said, his artificial voice soft and soothing. I am not insinuating that you did. What I am telling you is that your fetus repaired itself at a level I don't believe has ever been recorded before in any species. Quentin was trying to understand, trying and failing. Our kid had some congenital stuff that you thought might work itself out, so you let it ride, he said. And now it's like those problems were never there at all? What were the defects? A few issues related to incompatibilities between the genes of your two species. As I told you, I have experience with hybrid. And beyond my personal experience, the defects I saw are well documented among hundreds of thousands of hybrid pregnancies that have occurred over the past two centuries. What is new is that all heavy G genes in the problem areas have been eliminated. They were there. Now there are only human genes. Quentin's genes. Pata floated to the holotank. He called up an image showing 23 yellow circles, each containing a pair of squiggly lines. One of each pair was blue, the other was green. This is a representation of your baby's genome when I first examined her. Each chromosome is composed of two alleles, one from Quentin, which are in blue, and one from Rebecca, which are in green. This is normal. This is why each human or heavy G child is, in effect, half the mother and half the father. Bata's mouth flap reached into the display, tapped three of the chromosomes, adding a glowing yellow circle around each of them. I can give you the details later if you like. But these three chromosomes contain the gene coding for the congenital defects. As I said, that was what the genome looked like for your first pregnancy exam. This is what it looks like now. The display changed. In the three yellow circles, now both strands were blue. I don't understand, Becca said. If I give half a chromosome and Quentin gives half, how are those three all now Quentins? How is that possible? It is not possible, Doc said. Once the egg becomes fertilized, that is the end of genetic contribution from either parent. You can't just add more, not without artificial methods. Quentin tried to process what he saw, what he heard. So where did that extra stuff come from? From you, apparently, Patas said. They are copies of the alleles you first gave. For the three problematic chromosomes, the fetus somehow removed most of Becca's alleles through the baby's entire body, in every cell, and replace them with exact copies of Quentin's alleles. The all-blue chromosomes you see have two identical copies of that single allele that Quentin's sperm provided. Becca glanced at Quentin, a strange look in her eyes, then back at Doc. So, the baby is more Quentin than me? How can that be? How did this happen? Patat took a moment to answer, carefully choosing his words. We have to assume that there is something unique in Quentin's DNA, something undocumented in nearly a thousand years 
of human medicine. Rebecca glanced at Quentin again. That look on her face, was that suspicion? Quentin thought of Killian, how he and Killian looked so similar, how they both saw the lines of power. He should have pressed his father on that. Next time he saw the man, he would. I have no idea what's happening, Quentin said. This sounds like, well, like a weird form of cancer. Is my DNA messed up or something? Your DNA is obviously on record as part of the Kraken's franchise media information. The League has run tests against it to check for illegal genetic enhancements. Your DNA does not now, nor has it ever, shown any sign of abnormality. After seeing what happened to your child's genome, however, I ran every test known to science to see if there was some explanation. When it comes to your DNA, Quentin, I found nothing out of the ordinary. Aside from your unusual predisposition for size, strength, speed, endurance, and intelligence, all of which are in the upper one percentile for the human species, your DNA is perfectly normal. Quentin leaned back in his chair, looked doubtfully at the hurrah doctor. Upper one percentile in intelligence? Maybe the other things were true, sure. Quentin was obviously bigger, faster, and stronger than almost any other human he'd met. But intelligence? No, there were many people smarter than he was. So you can't explain why my DNA booted Becca's? No, Pata said. I cannot. Becca leaned forward, her bulk and scowl as intimidating in the office as they were on the gridiron. Tell me our daughter will be healthy, she said. That's what I need to know. Tell me. Pata paused again. Quentin had never seen the hurrah take so much time to consider his words. Healthy isn't even the word for it, Pata said, finally. For lack of a better way to phrase it, your baby is perfect, bordering on superhuman. Her genetic predispositions test off the charts for size and strength for a female hybrid. The tension visibly drained from Becca. She sagged in her chair. Thank God, she said. She's okay. My baby is okay. Quentin didn't mention the fact that Becca didn't believe in God, High One, or any higher power. If you wish, Patas said, I can continue my study into this phenomenon. Artificial voice or not, the hurrah could not hide the eagerness in his words. Quentin stood, gently pulled at Becca's arm, until she stood as well. She seemed exhausted, utterly weakened by the conversation. He thought of the attack at the hospital, of his encounter with Pierrefour in the Hypatia, how the woman had accessed Becca's private medical records. You can research, Doc, but with limits, Quentin said. Every person's genes are unique, right? Correct, Pata said. That is why it is called a genetic fingerprint. Your genes are unique to you. Quentin didn't want his daughter's information out there where one of his enemies might find it, use it to hurt her somehow. Keep researching and see what you can find, he said. But under no circumstances are you to let our child's genetic fingerprint be recorded anywhere but in your files. Take measures to lock down security. Would you be able to do all your work on a computer that is not connected to the net? Yes, I could, Pata said. But the equipment required would be prohibitively expensive. It's not just one computer. I need all the devices to work together and be completely disconnected from the net. Quentin started to ask, how much will it cost? 
then remembered he had not only his own money, but Greedock's massive wealth as well. Spend whatever you need to spend. Get the best of everything. Anything you need to do the job right. Understand? Money was no object. If it cost both fortunes combined to make sure the baby was safe and healthy, that was fine. I understand, Patas said. I concur with the need for isolation and secrecy. You can count on me, sir. Sir? Patah had never called him sir. Only Quentin or, more often, young Quentin. The tension between the two sentients had not gone away. Patah seemed eager to help, obviously, but Quentin could hear the hurrah's heartbeat. Faintly, yes, but he could hear it, and the rapid pattern spelled out something as plain as day. Patah was afraid of him. Quentin felt a new wash of shame. He had threatened Patah's life and meant it. Maybe Quentin wasn't a gangster, but there were times when he certainly acted like one. That was unacceptable. He would not use fear to influence or motivate those around him. Listen, Doc, what I said to you after the touchback bombing, when I threatened you, I... Well, I shouldn't have done that. I was raw from Hokor's death and my arm and all, but there's no excuse for it. I'm sorry. I won't do it again, and I won't ever hurt you. You have nothing to fear from me. Patah's slowly undulating wings fell still. The hurrah floated there, drifting left ever so slightly. When he spoke, Quentin felt a weight lifted from his soul. Apology accepted, Patah said. Thank you, young Quentin. I cannot express what your words mean to me. I will continue to work, and I will keep you both informed. Quentin and Becca left Patah's office. Chodo was waiting outside. Without a word, the warrior fell in behind Quentin and Becca, leaving them to their thoughts, watching out for danger. Not that there would be any danger. Not here. Not now, at least. It was still the off-season. A small army guarded Ionath Stadium kept anyone from coming in. Becca leaned against him as they walked. Quentin put his right arm around her shoulders. She reached up, patted his hand. Thank you for staying calm, she said. I was losing it back there. Anything for you, B. She patted his hand again, then stopped walking. You need to see something, she said. Something you've seen a thousand times before, but I bet it looks different now. Come on, Shoto. Her fear forgotten, replaced by an almost childlike air of glee, Becca pulled Quentin by the hand through the stadium corridors. They reached the tunnel that led to the field, the same tunnel the Krakens gathered in before every home game. Becca, Quentin, and Shota walked out of the tunnel onto the black-painted end zone turf. Take a look around, she said. However this came to be is how it came to be. This is all yours, Quentin. All yours. He'd understood that he owned the franchise, the stadium, the Krakens building, and so much more. But until that moment, the gravity of it all hadn't really hit home. As he looked out into the stands, up to the luxury boxes, across the blue field, it truly and finally did. He'd been born with nothing. Now he had everything. Congratulations, Chodo said. What you have accomplished, Quentin, is incredible. Becca slid her arm around Quentin's waist, leaned into him. All yours, she said. 
He again put his arm around her shoulder. All ours. Quentin looked at the 22 pillars rising up from the top edge of the empty upper deck, at the long, colorful team banners hanging from each pillar, the colors and logos of the Texas Earthlings, the Buddha City Elite, the Toe Pirates, the Jupiter Jacks, and the rest of the Tier 1 teams. He looked to the far end zone, to the massive scoreboard and holo display. On the left of that display, an orange and black banner commemorating the Kraken's 2685 GFL championship. On the scoreboard's right side, an identical banner signifying the franchise's first championship from 2665. We get to raise a new banner soon, he said. We'll do it for the home openers. INS third title. You know, the one with that sexy Galaxy Bowl MVP? Becca slid her hand up to the middle of his back, patted him twice. Q, I love you, she said. I love you with everything that I am. I will support anything you want to do. If you want to fight for the future of the galaxy, I will be there with you. If you don't think that's your destiny and you want to play football again, I'll help you make that happen. If you want to sell everything and we vanish, I'm in. Anything in between, I'm behind you. Whatever you want, as long as we stay together. Quentin stared out at an impossibility that had become real. He was the owner. Greedock was gone. Whatever happened with the Krakens going forward, it was on Quentin and no one else. Maybe we'll sell it someday, he said. But not yet. There's something I have to do first. She glanced up at him. And what's that? He raised his hands, looked at his championship rings. Two stones of orange, one of blue. He'd fought for those, bled for them. All the combined riches he now had weren't as impressive as these talismans of hard work and sacrifice. Quentin Barnes knew who he was. He had been born to lead, born to play quarterback. Someday, perhaps sooner rather than later, his body would fail him and his gridiron days would end. Someday, but not yet. Not yet. I want one more, he said. One more banner, one more ring, one more title. One more, Chodo said. That would be shamblazing. Becca rested her head against Quentin's shoulder. Together, the three teammates stared out at the empty stadium, wondering what challenges the future would bring. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine. 
erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Epilogue 2. Welcome back to the Galaxy's Greatest Damn Sports Show with Dan and Ekbar and Terry the Smasher. Hello, sports fans. It is I, Dan the Man Gianni, back once again with our daily dose of sports goodness. And today there is only one topic that matters the shocking news out of Ionath that Greedock the Splithead has given up his ownership of the Krakens. The new owner is none other than two time Galaxy Bowl winning quarterback Quentin Barnes. It doesn't get any crazier than this, Dan. Who would have thought we'd ever have a league without Greedock the Splithead? 24 years ago, he brought the Krakens into the fold during the GFL's first expansion. He guided the franchise to four Galaxy Bowl appearances, three league titles, and now he's out? A shocker to say the least, Akbar. We have no details on the transfer of ownership. It seems to me that while Barnes is rich, he's not owner rich. Not even close. Could there be other investors that as yet remain silent? Speaking of silence, Dan, there is no word from Greedock himself. All we have is a statement from Masal the Efficient, Greedock's top administrator, that the split had transferred ownership to Barnes. We do not know why. We do not know for how much. We do not even know if money was involved. Oh, come on, Tarrant. Are you insinuating that Barnes... Quentin Barnes, the orphan miner from McCovey, somehow outfoxed Greedock the Splithead? There are criminals in all parts of the galaxy, Akbar. Where Barnes hails from has no bearing on the situation. I agree with Akbar on this one, Tarrant. It seems unlikely that Barnes, who is only 23 years old and has no criminal background that we know of, could force Greedock the Splithead to give up the franchise. Greedock's been involved with organized crime since before the GFL even existed. Then where is Greedock? Why have we not heard from him? Is it that hard to figure out? Greedock was a gangster. Live by the sword, die by the sword. Maybe his criminal life caught up with him. But if so, how does Barnes wind up with the goods? I mean, Barnes is still listed as the starting quarterback. Why is he the team owner? Dan, I do find it disturbing that yet another human takes over ownership of a top-tier franchise at the expense of a quiff leader. Oh, come on, Tarrant. Not your baseless accusations of speciesism again. I am looking at facts, Akbar. Sick of the death, on the orbiting death, until a transport ship crashed into his office and killed him. At which point, Anna Volani, a human, I should point out, became the team owner. And now, only a few years later, Greedock the Splithead mysteriously disappears, and another human, Quentin Barnes, becomes the owner of the Krakens. Tarrant, if you're saying there's some grand conspiracy to take ownership away from Quith and give it all to humans, that doesn't jibe with the fact that this transition appears to be legal. While we haven't heard from Greedock, there's no death report and no criminal investigation into his silence at this time. Well, I mean, I don't want to agree with Tarrant's conspiracy theory, but Greedock was a criminal, and criminals force other criminals to do things. This wouldn't be the first time a legal sale was actually coercion. It would take far more than coercion. Greedock loved owning the Krakens. He was a motivated owner, 
very involved in his franchise. Yes, he had other interests, some more legal than others, but Greedock the Splithead is not the kind of sentient to voluntarily give up ownership of the Krakens. Yet that is exactly what happened. Just because Greedock stuck a finger in a contract box doesn't mean it was voluntary. That theory's been disproven time and time again. Contract boxes measure every biotel available to make sure the participants aren't in pain, under stress, and so on. That theory has been disproven in the large, Dan. Statistically, contract box transactions are extremely reliable, but there are instances where the tech missed that a participant was forced. Greedock could have been coerced. Coerced by Quentin Barnes? Do you think Barnes suddenly went from being a practice football all day, dreaming about football all night guy, to becoming some kind of heavy-hitting criminal? If he wasn't a gangster before, he sure is now. What? You think Quentin Barnes is a gangster? Greedock had multiple interests. And my sources tell me Barnes is now the head of Greedock's criminal syndicate. Barnes owns everything that Greedock once owned, controls everything that Greedock once controlled. This is ridiculous. Is it? If Barnes is smart enough and ruthless enough to take the Krakens away from one of the most dangerous sentients in the galaxy, who knows what he's capable of? You two guys, I swear, how about we drop the guesswork about whether or not Barnes is now a master criminal and we stick to sports? You know, because this is the galaxy's greatest sports show. Here's something to consider. This is the first time a GFO player has become an owner. That's a huge development. Barnes is now the owner, so what are the ramifications for the 2687 season? You mean besides the fact that the Krakens are screwed? Why do you say that? Barnes can throw a ball, but that ain't the same as running a whole team. He doesn't know anything. I mean, this would be like, I don't know, some rich sentient with absolutely zero political experience running for president of the Planetary Union and winning. As if that could ever happen, Akbar. Let's keep this in the realm of reality. Akbar has a point, Dan. Barnes has no experience running a team. Hopefully, he relies heavily on Masal the Efficient. It is well known that Masal handles many of the day-to-day activities, leaving the big decisions to Greedock. Barnes will have to rely on Masal for more than that. In addition to being the starting quarterback and team owner and controlling... Well, for now, let's just say Barnes is controlling Greedock's other business interests. Barnes now also owns the Rufflin Ridgebacks. When will Barnes have time to pay attention to a Dino-Lition team? The kid goes from focusing on one thing only, football, to having more responsibilities than he can possibly manage. If you think his quarterbacking ability isn't going to be impacted by this lack of focus, you're crazy. And then there is the rumor that Barnes's arm has not healed. He may be listed as the starter, but we do not know if that will last. Rebecca Montaigne is pregnant and will miss the 2687 season. She was the Galaxy Bowl winning quarterback. If Barnes cannot play effectively due to his injury, will he find his own replacement? Hell yes! Now we're talking sports! So much drama! The Krakens might be in a position where the person responsible for determining the starting quarterback already is the starting quarterback. Hello? Conflict of interest city? Table for two, please! Whatever Barnes does, he better do it soon, because most people don't realize how many things happen in the offseason. Particularly now, when no one outside of the GFL and sports media is thinking about football at all. So, both of you think the transition of ownership and the complications that said transition brings with it means the Krakens are heading for trouble? 
Absolutely, Dan. I will go on record saying not only that the Krakens will not three-peat, but that they will have a losing record this year. Whoa, hold on there, big guy. I'll agree the Krakens have a snowball's chance in hell of winning it all, but a losing record? They're still loaded with talent. On offense, they have Jew Tweedy, George Starcher, Denver, Milford, and Halawa, who is poised to become a superstar this year. Reports are that Jota the Bright passed an early physical and seems to be recovering well from the gunshot wounds he suffered in the assassination attempt on Barnes that happened in New York City. That means the linebacker core of Chodo, John Tweedy, and Virak the Mean could still be solid. And the team has a great defensive backfield led by Cormorant Bumberpuff. This team is loaded. Loaded, but with a question mark at quarterback. The most important position in the game. And they have an aging offensive line. Part of what made the Kraken so good was Barnes' ability to scramble when that line collapsed, which it did often. If Barnes is not on the field, or is not the quarterback he used to be, whoever takes the snaps for INF is going to get badly beat up. And we're conveniently glossing over another glaring issue. The Krakens don't have a coach. No one has been hired to replace Hokor, the hook chest. My sources say that Bagol the Fishy is a leading candidate. Bagol was a candidate when Greedock was in control of the franchise. But do you think that a gunslinger like Barnes is going to hire a run-first coach? I gotta agree with Tarrant, Dan. The INF Krakens are heading for a losing season. Let's see what the callers think. Mowgli the Tailor, you're on the space. Go! Epilogue 3. Home. Quentin stood in Greedock's former bedroom. A bedroom was supposed to be a place of rest, a place to recharge. A place that was yours, either as an individual or, if you had a partner, as a couple. Greedock's bedroom was none of those things. His bedroom was a place of loneliness. An armored door that could deflect high-powered lasers. Walls that could survive missile attacks. Stored food, stored water, stored air. Greedock had had to wall himself up in a fortress, alone, just to sleep through the night. That was the life of a gangster. Was Quentin headed for the same thing? No. He would divest himself of the inherited criminal trappings. He would build a future with Becca and their child. A life with family. Janine, Ma, John, Jew, maybe even Killian. Hopefully, Killian. Knuckles rapping on the open metal hatch. Hey, your richness, can I come in? Frederico, smiling that half-joyful, half-condescending smile of his. Sure, Fred, come on in. Fred walked in, looked around at the sleepwebbing, the mirrors, the jewelry chest. Looks even sadder in person, he said. You've seen this room before? Fred nodded toward the holotank. I hacked my way into there to have a conversation with former Splithead. You can hack into holotanks? Remind me to make sure there aren't any in my bedroom. Fred laughed. Believe me, there's nothing going on in your bedroom that I want to see. But still, it's a good idea. I'm not the only one who can hack into the things. Quentin wondered if Pirifor could. Then he wondered if she already had. Funny you wanted to meet me here, Fred said. I'm surprised I didn't have to book an appointment with Masal and see you in Greedock's obnoxious chamber. Although, of course, now it's your 
obnoxious chamber. I still haven't gone in there. Hard to get used to the idea it's mine now. I'm here because I came to gather up Greedock's belongings. He, uh, well, let's just say the original owner wants them. Masal had communicated Greedoka's request. Much of the obnoxious art would be heading out on the next transport. The Sunrise also wanted her old jewelry. Quentin had every right to keep all of it, but none of it mattered to him. If the Sunrise wanted all this stuff, she could have it. Quentin could have had Masal gather up all of Greedock's old baubles, but it wasn't yet time to make requests of the worker. Best to stay out of Masal's way until Greedoka was fully set up in her new place, wherever that was. Soon, though, Quentin and Masal would have to figure things out, understand how they could work together. Quentin couldn't run the Krakens without the worker. It's kind of wild to walk around the Krakens building without fear, Fred said. Even when Greedock gave me a pass because I was hanging out with your sister, I was never 100% sure he wasn't going to have Virak put a bullet in the back of my head. Greedock had considered Fred an enemy. Fred was now just as free as Quentin and Becca were. Greedock had you looking into the attempt on my life at Randall Hospital, Quentin said. Fill me in on what you've learned. Fred's eyes narrowed. That's what I thought this was about. Any reason I'm telling you when you're by yourself, as opposed to with your wife? Seems like she should know what's up, doesn't it? Fred was right, of course, but there was a big difference between what should be and what is. I'm keeping her out of some things for now, for her own safety. For her safety? If it wasn't for her risking that safety, you'd still be wanted by the Ministry of Religion. You know that, right? Quentin did know that. He'd freed himself from Greedock. Becca had freed him from the CMR. Eventually, he would tell her everything. Pregnancy is stressful, Fred. Don't fight me on this, all right? Not now. You're the one paying the bills. Greedock had me looking into payments for the three hitters who came after you. I had to go to the nation to follow the money trail. I've got some news you won't like. The payments originated on Buddha City Station. You can guess who my primary suspect is. Quentin's heart sank. Stedmar Osborne? Guessed it on the first try. I don't have a lot of information, but based on where the payments came from, the amounts involved, that they went to criminal elements, and that you whooped his team's ass in the playoffs, I see means, motive, and opportunity. The Krakens had faced the Buddhist city elite, the team Stedmar owned, in the first round of the playoffs. Ionath had won 48-14. Not much of a contest. If the elite had won... It was doubtful the team could have beat OS1 in the second round, but that was why the games were played. On any given Sunday, one team could beat another. It wouldn't be the first time an owner has tried to take out the opposition's best player, Fred said. Stedmar knows that if the Elite make the playoffs again next year, sooner or later, his team has to beat the Krakens. No disrespect to your wife, but even a football neophyte like me knows Stedmar would rather face a team quarterback by Becca than by you. Fred liked to pretend he knew very little about the game. Quentin had his doubts about that being true. Stedmar isn't the only suspect, Quentin said. Volani, Gloria Ogawa, and J.T. Manis would like to see me out of the game. Could they have made the payments from Buddha City Station as a way to frame Stedmar? You don't like the idea that the guy who rescued you from poverty now wants you dead? The way Fred said that made his views obvious, that Quentin was being naive. I know what Stedmar is, Fred, but he's far from the only one who wants me gone. Yeah, you're right. 
you have a regular who's who of enemies, including the Zoroastrian Guild. Did Wakan Reed tell you about them yet? After leaving the spaceport, Quentin had avoided Reed. Something about him seemed off, even for one of Greedock's goons. No, not yet. Well, you better talk to him, and soon. As in, before you leave this building. I can tell you what he told me, but I don't want to paraphrase. Fred sounded serious. Reed creeps me out a little, Quentin said. You trust him? Fred rolled his eyes. Trust Wakan Reed? Hell no! Not now, not ever. But he works for you now, and I will give credit where credit is due. He knows his business. He's a better investigator than I am, and I don't say that lightly. Put his knowledge and skills to use, just think twice before you're alone with him. Sound advice. Quentin felt safe in the Kraken's building, but he couldn't stay here forever, and Chodo couldn't always be at his side. Especially if Chodo played in the upcoming season, and Quentin could not. You need to get used to a new reality cue. Now that you own Greedox Empire, some extremely ruthless and very dangerous sentients are going to come after you. They'll keep coming until you show the galaxy that there is a high price to pay for doing so. Even Fred thought Quentin would act like a gangster? What do you want me to do, Fred? Make examples of my enemies, like Greedock did? If I ask you to take someone out, are you going to do it? Fred was quiet for a moment. Would you ask me to take someone out, Q? Quentin shook his head instantly, but in truth, he wasn't sure. If the safety of Becca and the baby was on the line, To be honest, Fred, I don't know. I hope not. Fred's lips curled into a humorless grin. That makes two of us. I'm not going to be a gangster, Quentin said. I'm getting rid of all the criminal stuff. All of it. I hope so. I hope you're the person I believe you to be. I hope you don't get corrupted by the power you now have. Power you're not even aware of yet. Power like that? It can cost you more than just your life. It can cost you friends. It can cost you family. Fred straightened, gave a mock salute. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have a lunch date with your sister. When you need me, I'll be there. But you'd better think real, real careful about what you need me for. Fred left the room, giving the thick door a double slap as he left. Quentin stood there, alone. It can cost you friends. It can cost you family. He looked around the armored room. For all of Greedock's power and influence, this room was where he'd slept. Alone. Always alone. Quentin would not let that happen to himself. He moved to the jewelry cabinet and started gathering Greedoka, the Sunrise's personal treasures. You have been listening to The Gangster, book six in the Galactic Football League series, written and narrated by Scott Ziegler. Follow Scott on Instagram and Twitter, where he is at Scott Ziegler, one word, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash For more information on the Galactic Football League series and for more free audiobook podcasts, visit scottsigler.com. The Gangster was directed by A. Sigler, engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2020, Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song They're Watching Me by the band Super Weapon.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.